Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at W www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 190, for the week ending January 31, 2020. Today's stories include Airbus is about to settle corruption charges for nearly $4 billion. Did Ericsson executives act in bad faith? Ericsson says yes. What are the five key takeaways from Luanda Leaks? Allison Taylor explains. Should the Trump, should we worry about the Trump administration gutting the FCPA? Matthew Stevenson opines. How can you use external resources to bolster your compliance program? Jay continues his series on CCI. The SEC provides some pointers on cybersecurity. Matt Kelly explores for us. Why is sponsorship important in compliance? Mary Shirley explains. And did corruption play a role in the coronavirus? Uh, we take a look at that question. Finally, on the Compliance Podcast Network, I detail the five top podcasts on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program that I posted this week. Jay and I will be attending the ECI Impact 2020 Conference. I hope you can join us. It will be April 21 to 23 in Boston. We've got a discount code uh, in the show notes, so uh, please check that out. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I know you'll enjoy this episode. This Week in FCPA, episode 190 for the week ending, January 31, 2020, the What's $4 Billion Between Friends edition. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. Uh, how are things in New York City? Uh, actually, I'm in Washington. Oh, you're in Washington. Sorry. Washington. So, um, doing a little business. Jay, there are reports that uh, Airbus will settle corruption allegations for nearly $4 billion in London, perhaps as early as uh, this week. Are there any other bombshells out there? Of course, uh, we have Super Sunday coming. Um, big day for all us Christians, you know, to watch football on the Lord's Sabbath as we move forward. So uh, you want to just hop right into it? Yeah, let's, let's talk about Air, uh, Airbus. We have uh, several articles we're quoting to. Um, the BBC, Kate Bioli, and Peggy Hollinger in the Financial Times, and Benjamin Katz in the Wall Street Journal. And as you said in the lead, uh, Airbus has agreed to pay penalties of $3.6 billion with the dollars to settle corruption probes by U.S., U.K., and French regulators into contract dealings, lifting a reputational and legal cloud that has hung over the company for several years. The European playmaker said it's come to terms with prosecutors and preliminary court documents, and these could be finalized as soon as tomorrow, January 31st. 
The resolution of these issues come four years after Airbus first announced it was under investigation. And it's a timely result, uh, especially with what's happening to their chief competitor, Boeing. Uh, they would love to turn the page and move forward. Uh, some similar fines in 2017, Rolls-Royce reached a similar settlement that required the jet engine maker to pay $874 million in penalties to the U.S., the U.K., and Brazilian regulators. The deal should allow Chief, Bus uh, Chief Executive Guillaume Fauri, who took over the job in April, to move beyond an issue that has occupied his predecessor, Tom Enders. The new management can now focus more fully on running the company, especially at a time when its rivals, uh, Boeing, is seen better days. So it's a big, um, it's a big settlement uh, starting the year off in January. Uh, what do you think about a monitor? Is it a candidate here or not? Well, actually, you know, you're Mr. Monitor. Mr. Monitor is the... I know, but I, I, I'm, you're, you're the one who testifies in front of, uh, you know, civil bodies and public bodies. So I thought you might have a, uh, a guess on that. Based on the fine and penalty, it would certainly seem to be a candidate for monitorship because, Jay, my guess is this is not a uh, violation of facilitation payments. This is uh, systemic bribery and corruption over multiple years. We have three jurisdictions enforcing it, United States, France, and uh, the United Kingdom. The number, of course, in and of itself is stunning. I think this will bring it in as the largest anti-corruption fine in the history of the world ever, eclipsing JBF, which was $3.6 uh, billion. Uh, this, I think, is going to be closer to $4.4 billion. Um, and uh, it's going to be very interesting when the settlement documents or the deferred prosecution agreements released and we can actually take a deep dive into what Boeing, uh, not Boeing, Boeing competitor Airbus did um, and see what lessons uh, we can be learned. But, uh, uh, you know, if I were Mr. Monitors, my only suggestion was be you get on a non-Airbus plane and uh, fly, fly over to the United Kingdom and <laughs> put a little uh, sign on your hat that says Mr. Monitors. And I'm here. Will monitors for pounds, for francs, and for any other currency? Well, very good. So, Tom, um, has Ericsson or their executives been acting in bad faith? What say Dick Casson on the FCPA blog? Uh, she has a father, uh, a former teenage girl, uh, and this has nothing to do with them. Because uh, this is an article Dick wrote about a release of a statement by the Swedish telecom Eric, who recently had a 1.1 billion plus FCPA resolution, where in a um, 6K filing, uh, it said, quote, while the company had a compliance program and a supporting control framework, they were not adequately implemented, specifically certain employees in some markets some of whom were executives in those markets, acted in bad faith and knowingly failed to implement sufficient controls. They were able to enter into transactions for illegitimate purposes, together with people under their influence, use sophisticated schemes in order to hide their wrongdoing. So that's a, in corporate speak, that's a hugely significant statement. And we have the company admitting to not just negligence, not just intentional conduct, but bad faith. And that's a level of... Um, culpability and liability we typically don't see. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you can't uh, get clean if you don't admit you have a problem. 
So maybe this is uh, step one in a stealth, stealth 12 step program that Erickson will engage in uh, going forward. They admitted they are powerless and uh, could not control their uh, desires for bribery and corruption. So um, it's going to be interesting uh, to see how this goes forward, but it's a pretty stunning statement. Uh, this, um, I think, was alluded to in the deferred prosecution agreement, but it's going to be uh, interesting to see who, if anyone, will be prosecuted individually based on uh, the statement, Jay. So uh, next up, we have another article from the FCPA blog from our good friend, Allison Taylor, and she gives us five takeaways from the Luanda leaks. Uh, back in 2013, uh, National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden leaked a large volume of highly classified information to investigative journalists, inspiring a new generation of whistleblowers. Since then, we've all been given access to the Panama and Paradise Papers, and last week brought the latest revelation data forum uh, a dump, which has been uh, dubbed the Luanda Leaks, and they have provided damaging insights into the business dealings and corporate relationships of Isabel Dos Santos, the daughter of Angola's former president. Um, Allison shares with us five takeaways. The first one is the focus on human rights impacts of anti-corruption is sharpening. While the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers drew attention to the techniques the global elite used to protect their wealth and avoid taxation, the Luanda leaks have focused public attention on the causal link between kleptocratic governments and negative human rights. Number two, the spotlight moves to professional services firms. This has been most strikingly demonstrated by last week's revelations that firms such as PwC, KPMG, BCG and McKinsey were all willing to work for entities controlled by Dos Santos. Number three, in opaque jurisdictions, context is key. Comprehending beneficial ownership and reputational risk in opaque jurisdictions such as Angola is extremely challenging. Although many due diligence providers are capable of delivering this understanding, clients too often instruct them to stick to the facts. Number four, a new model of jurisdiction has come to age. Transparency alone cannot drive change. Giant data leaks are of limited utility without a Herculean effort to interpret and translate those primary findings. As with Panama and Paradise Papers, a consortium of organizations that included the ICIJ, The Guardian, New York Times, and Quartz assembled more than 120 journalists from 20 companies to map this vast trove of data. And finally, corporate confidentiality confidentiality is dead. And if a company is under the impression that client confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements still offer meaningful protection, the Wolanda leaks drives another nail into that coffin of the misperception. So um, real, uh, real great insight from Allison. And as I said, uh, we link to it in the show notes. Uh, next up, Tom, should we worry about the Trump administration gutting the FCPA? What does Matthew Stevenson have to say in the global anti-corruption blog? So as many of uh, readers of blogs know and listeners to this podcast know, Matthew Stevenson is one of the most thoughtful commentators around. And this is certainly not a hot take. He's definitely thought about it. Um, some commentators uh, really think this is much to do about nothing. Uh, Matt Kelly is certainly in that camp. He's written about it. Um, Matthew, however, has a, a little bit uh, a more concerned uh, outlook. Uh, and it's really, I think, five points. The uh, the first is that it 
the comment by this is of course the comment by Larry Kudlow that they're looking at the FCPA because of complaints from companies. It shows the really the sycophant nature of those who are around Trump and how they are just facilitating his worst instincts. Because when this came up initially with Rex Tillerson, Rex Tillerson pushed back and said, "No, we don't pay bribes here." Uh, the second is that the Kudlow, as director of the National Economic Council is uh, basically saying that the FCPA was created for the pur- uh, FCPA enforcement. It's for the benefit of pur- uh, purpose of benefiting U.S. companies. Obviously, that's not true, and it's a very bad look. Next, the um, uh, it certainly points towards the politicization, politicizing of the FCPA. Of course, with the corruption in the White House, they basically politicized everything and even judicial enforcement. Of, uh, of U.S. laws, which had been previously uh, enforced by uh, the Department of Justice. And finally, is that uh, it, along with Kudlow's sycophant nature of kowtowing to the president, he really missed a great opportunity to have a full-throated condemnation of bribery and corruption as an affirmation of the U.S. government's fight against this international scourge. Uh, he seems to have forgotten that bribery and corruption was one of the uh, leading flashpoints which led to 9-11. Um, of course, that presupposes he's ever studied history, but even if he hadn't, uh, he only has to ask someone uh, with half a brain. So um, it was a very dispiriting column by Matthew, but I thought one that was uh, very well thought out and certainly uh, laid out some uh, concerns that we should all have. Uh, great, Tom. So this week in the first two articles that we pick up from Corporate Compliance Insights, I'm continuing with a uh, Part three of a blog post looking at DOJ announcements over the past several years, as well as the FCPA corporate enforcement policy to consider how companies can use this information externally to bolster their compliance programs. There are several areas from the DOJ uh, guidance that make use of external resources more impactful for a corporate compliance program. Let's consider what a company might do if it is required to self-report a violation such as a violation of the FCPA. It might begin by bringing in a crisis manager to look at the board, board governance and management functions of very specific programs. Another area where an external resource and compliance can be most helpful is in establishing the credibility with regulators. Regulators may also see this external resource as bringing another set of eyes to a matter for review. Once you start coordinating with the government agency, you voluntarily decide to report something you may if, if you voluntarily decide to report something, you may be waiving the attorney client privilege. Under new guidance, you may have to cooperate fully and identify names and individuals within the company. Another area that was certainly emphasized by the DOJ in their 2018 guidance was the mergers and acquisition front, particularly in the pre-acquisition phase. In July of 2018, The DOJ formalized the safe harbor provision first articulated in 2012 in the FCPA guidance around companies that performed appropriate level of pre-acquisition due diligence and then engaged in a um, post-acquisition integration. The DOJ wants companies to show that they not only know what they were acquiring from a commercial perspective, but they should also be informed about the compliance size. You need to take a look at whether a company has a variety of compliance program indicia. Does it have a compliance program? Does it have a hotline? Are there complaints to the hotline? And are there things that are percolating below the surface 
that you are not going to see in just looking at dollars? Does it have a good compliance control? These are all questions that I thought of when looking back on these uh, issues. And next week in part four, I will be exploring how companies can use their compliance as both a sword and a shield. Tom, uh, on your docket next, uh, the SEC provides some pointers on cybersecurity. Uh, what did Matt Kelly have to say about this in Radical Compliance? So in a post entitled Fresh SEC Tips on T- Cybersecurity, Matt reviewed a 13-page bulletin published by the SEC Office of Compliance Inspections and Examination. He recommends it really for every compliance professional in addition to security, um, IT professionals, and risk management professionals. He looks at uh, several different key components. One was governance and risk management. The second is, and of course, uh, you should look at uh, not only how your de- how your company does business, but who it does business with as part of uh, defining your risk assessment methodology. Uh, you should also look uh, or rather move towards continuously monitoring and evaluating and adapting to changing environment. And probably in cybersecurity, there's no more uh, current environment that that's true. Another key point is access controls. This can encompass everything from strong segregation of duties to passwords to multi-factor factor authentication. And then he concludes with some words on cybersecurity and resiliency. And he's written quite a bit on resiliency. And that's uh, your organization's ability to withstand and recover from disruption. And he thinks that, uh, or I, I guess I should say that um, that remedial step is going to become much more important around cybersecurity because uh, unlike perhaps on a corruption where you may engage in actions which are some people in your company may engage in actions, which is criminal behavior, cybersecurity uh, incident could shut your company down. So it can be really catastrophic. And so are you going to be resilient enough to get back up and running uh, in short order? So um, our colleague, Mary Shirley, who uh, works in the Boston area, for for Cineas North America has just been uh, knocking it out of the. You just had to get Boston in, didn't you? Just had to do it. I did, you know, because that's the only joy I have this week to talk about Boston once. But another joy I have is to talk about our good friend Mary Shirley. Uh, she's, as I said, been knocking it out of the park. And uh, this is an article that was promised from Corporate Compliance Insights and. Many people when they're in their careers are lucky to have a mentor, but Mary Lex is talking to us in this article about recognizing the value in a sponsor, which is a more involved mentor, and it's the easy part. Mary offers guidance on how to identify and secure a sponsor to help guide you in your career development. For those of us in the life science industries, Mary says, sponsorship means paying for the continuing professional education of healthcare professionals. It also may mean obtaining a marketing advertising opportunity by sponsoring an event or a team. For the purposes of this article, she's referring to having a sponsor, which is the title given to someone who assists you in advancing your career and who seeks out opportunities for you. Mary was recently at a Massachusetts conference for women, and she attended a session where the distinction was made between a mentor and a sponsor. She talks about five tips to obtain a sponsor with a caveat. First, you need to develop a good relationship with your boss. Be reliable and make yourself a go-to person and and do this by putting your hand up for new opportunities. Number two, say what you want out loud. Be willing to have a career mapping session. And if you do so, let your make sure your supervisor is keenly aware of what your ambitions are. Three, 
give your elevator speech as an aspirational component. Uh, this was an interesting point that she made when everybody is uh, at a meeting or on a phone call and asked to go around and talk about themselves. This would be a great idea to take your elevator speech out and give it an aspirational spin. Number four, reach out, identify someone who you think would make a great sponsor and ask them if they would be. And number five, demonstrate your skills externally. Uh, quite often, Mary is, offered, is asked for her opinion when people submit resumes looking for jobs at the company. Sometimes she passes them right through, but if she's able to add a note about their thought leadership or other activities she's seen on LinkedIn, uh, Mary is impressed and is happy to give that bit of critical thinking as a, an advantage to the uh, hiring officer. The final caveat is, is that while having a sponsor can be incredibly beneficial, it is not something everyone has at every moment in the career. Obtaining a sponsor can take years, and that's perfectly fine and normal. In time, you'll naturally gravitate towards those with whom you have a complementary working style and with who you enjoy working. And it's very likely that one of those people will become your sponsor without you even knowing about it. So a uh, great article from Mary. And um, as we said, it's linked in the show notes. Tom, uh, what role did corrupt play, did corruption play and the um, coronavirus? Uh, Greta Fenner and Monica Guy explore this in the SCPA blog. So before we get to that, Jay, we have to note for uh, all of the gamblers listening to this podcast that was 1530 before Jay had his first uh, reference to Boston. So if you bet the under <laughs> at 15, um, he lost. He actually went over. I know the under was uh, the clear betting favorite based upon the numbers we saw, but uh, he actually held off to 1530. So it's called at 1530. Uh, you can uh, settle up to the uh, checkout window and cash in your tickets at uh, your local uh, betting shop. Um so, Jay, this was, a, I thought, a provocative article, provocative because uh, one theory is that this was a um, Chinese uh, medical, uh, or not medical, but uh, uh, abortive weapon experiment that went awry and got out from some sort of, uh, you know, uh, dark uh, chamber. But it really makes sense when you think about not only the uh, corruption that is endemic or allegedly endemic in China, but also uh, the lack of inspectors. Uh, when there are inspectors, were they given clean bills? Uh, did they give clean bills of health, which apparently they were? Were bribes paid for these inspections? Uh, what about the reporting? Were bribe payments made to cover up uh, the actual number of people who have died? Or is the lack of transparency part of the overall corruption problem? Uh, it certainly speaks to some of the things I thought tied into what Matthew Stevenson's uh, uh, thoughts were on uh, Larry uh, Cuddow's, uh abortive attempt to uh, say that they were looking at uh, changing the FCPA. And it really points to what can happen when you have uh, corruption baked into a culture and a society. And it, it really points to why we need robust enforcement action of anti-corruption, whether or not this was caused by corruption uh, directly, whether or not it was a virus that escaped the uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, some uh, rogue laboratory, we'll ne probably never know. But it really points up why corruption is such a global uh, scourge. It's not simply economics, uh, but as we saw with Ebola, 
Um, it's it can be uh, health related. It can lead to uh, crime. It can certainly lead to terrorism. So the the fight against corruption doesn't need to be uh, lessened. It needs to uh, be increased. And the coronavirus reminds us of what can happen uh, when you don't have that sort of uh, robustness. So um, the last article we have today comes to us from the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog from some attorneys at Morrison and Forster in both the UK and New York. And the UK Serious Fraud Office issues guidance for evaluating compliance programs, which uh, strangely or not so strangely echo DOJ guidance. On the 17th of January of this year, the UK Serious Fraud Office released guidance on evaluating compliance programs, the SFO guidance. This is the first time the SFO has issued guidance on how it will assess the effectiveness of an organization's compliance program. The SFO guidance, which should be read together with the SFO guidance on corporate prosecutions and code for crown prosecutors, covers three key areas. First, the stages at which the SFO may consider the state of an organization's compliance program. Number two, how assessment of a compliance program will fit within the wider SFO investigation. And three, the six principles the SFO will consider when assessing an organization's compliance program. In terms of the stages, we've heard this before with the DOJ guidance, that they'll look at the program in the past, in the present, in the future. So what happened when you were uh, being investigated? What happened in the intervening time between the investigation? The SFO guidance also sets out in brief terms how it will assess the compliance program. It does not prescribe a particular approach with the SFO acknowledging that individual cases give, differ. However, stress, prosecutors stress that they should consider compliance issues early on in an investigation and ensure that their approach containing information on compliance program keeps in mind the aims of the broader investigation. Organizations can therefore expect at a very early stage in the SFO investigations to be required to produce documents such as compliance policies and procedures, gifts and hospitality registers, and other documentation. Number three, the assessment of compliance program through the Ministry of Justice's six principles. Uh, when you print this article out, they've done a real nice job of mapping the SFO uh, six principles to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And although the information is a lot broader and the DOJ guidance, uh, they tie together quite uniformly. Uh, in terms of echoing the DOJ guidance, the Department of Justice issued guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs in March of 2017 and updated the guidance of 2019. The DOJ enforce, reinforces the need for compliance policy to be effective and not simply a paper program. And now there have been three questions that have been burned into our brains. Is the compliance program well-designed? Is it being applied earnestly in good faith? And does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? Uh, the SFO's guidance is an excellent addition to the growing library of guidance related to corporate prosecutions issued under SFO Director Lisa Rozovsky since she took office in August of 2018. And not only does it provide transparency in what the SFO is looking for, but it also serves to reassure smaller businesses that prosecutors will consider proportionality when they are evaluating their corporate's compliance programs. So, Jay, we are at 31 days, and that means we are at the end of 31 days, to a more effective compliance program. So 
As I mentioned last week, as a kind of a special announcement, I am going to be, um, after I have my head checked, uh, extending this uh, podcast series uh, through the year 2020. So uh, each month, I'm going to take up a separate issue around uh, compliance. Next month, it's going to be the role of human resources in compliance. It will not, and I repeat, not be a daily uh, show. It will be a business day only. So we'll have 20 episodes next month. Um, but uh, the response has just been overwhelming. People really seem to uh, appreciate it. The download numbers are just stunning. And uh, so I'm going to keep keep it going. And um, this, uh, this week, I ended up with... Uh, Five uh, topics of interest. Uh, on day 27, I considered pre-acquisition, due diligence, and M&A. On day 28, I looked at uh, requirements in post-acquisition integration. On day 29, I swung over to root cause analysis and defined that. On day 30, I talked about how do you use a root cause analysis to remediate. And then today, I concluded with what are the uh, levels of due diligence. So uh, it's, the show has its own iTunes channel. It will continue on. Um, uh, in uh, on iTunes. So I hope uh, listeners will check it out. I hope you will enjoy it. Uh, binge listen to your heart's content. All right. So this is the part of the podcast we've been waiting for, right, Tom? That's it. So you want to know what I think the final score is going to be and who's going to have it. So, so 38 to 37 is my prediction. And Jimmy G, San Francisco Giants, Pull it out with a uh, march down the field within the last two minutes, and uh, either they just bust right through or it's a field goal. But I think, you know, there's always hope springs eternal in a Super Bowl that you think you're going to have two evenly matched teams. And I haven't done the research, but I'm saying uh, more often than not, they can turn to be, turn out to be blowouts or snoozers. But uh, I like both of these teams offensively. I like San Francisco a little bit more defensively, but I think it's going to be uh, pretty tight and go down to the wire. What say you? Well, uh, I think we're going to have a track meet, and uh, I think it's going to be up and down the field. Uh, my prediction is uh, 51-38, uh, Kansas City. Will Kansas City uh, take off the first pe- first quarter like they usually do, and then uh, Patrick Mahomes will come and throw five touchdowns in the second quarter? No, I think they're going to come out of the – I think they're going to take the ball at the kickoff. They're going to win the coin flip. They're going to take the ball. They're going to come out firing on all cylinders. They're going to march down the field. They're going to score. I think San Francisco is going to take the kickoff and give it to that fifth-string running back who's been cut by six teams, and he's going to run it right down the field, and we're going to be off to the races. And at some point, San Francisco is going to run out of gas, and Kansas City will take charge and win. And Andy Reid finally gets his big one. And Andy Reid gets the big one. Patrick Mahomes, good Texas boy, uh, wins the Super Bowl. And the uh, your Patriot legacy, soon to be not forgotten ever uh, quarterback of the future, Jimmy G, uh, will be back with us next year in the Super Bowl. There is one more uh, homey uh, thing I can announce that um, one of the car companies has an ad that talks about the smart pock and it's how you can pock your car with a remote control and they have some uh, Boston people and they were talking about, did you park your car by the harbor? Did you park it? Uh, you know, here, did you park it there? So uh, all you uh, chowder heads, that will be our one little um, moment of happiness uh, before we see Tom Brady uh, leaving and going to become 
You heard it here first, a Los Angeles Charger. Uh, on that very sad note, Jay, you want to take us home? On behalf of Michigan graduate extraordinaire Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, who just went to the lonely University of Pennsylvania, a.k.a. the Wharton School of Business, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 190, for the week ending the January 30, uh, ending January 31st, 2020, the what's $4 billion between friends. Uh, we hope you enjoy the Super Bowl, and uh, we look forward to talking to you next week and the month of February. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I link to the code for a discount to ECI's Impact 2020 in the show notes. I hope you will plan to join Jay and I at the event in Boston. Uh, I believe uh, Affiliated Monitors will have a uh, special uh, event uh, in addition or in conjunction with uh, the Impact 2020 conference. Impact 2020 is really one of the top conferences around. It's a very high level. If you want sort of the best cutting edge uh, compliance programs, this is the conference for you. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take a look at stories that caught our eye. And I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, founded in 2000. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.